I want to welcome you to Central this morning where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I can't tell you how happy I am to be back with you today. Uh, I, uh, many of you know I've struggled with migraines for nearly 30 years, but this one uh, took a nasty turn and completely debilitated me for a while. I'm so grateful for the wonderful medical care that I've received. Thank you, Dr. Summer. I'm grateful for uh, the way that you congregation have loved us and sent cards and visits and meals. It's, it's been amazing. And the leadership of our church, um, the way our staff stepped up to lead and serve, how well your elders have loved me. I want you to know how wonderful the leadership of our church has been in encouraging me not to come back until I was ready, until I was healthy. They've been patient with the pace of slow healing. They've been tender. They've been encouraging, and I'm so grateful. We talk about shepherding a lot here at our church, and I want you to know how well our elders and deacons and leaders have shepherded me and my family in these past weeks. I can't tell you how grateful I am. I'm overjoyed to be here with you this morning to continue to sit at the table with Jesus today. Our lesson comes from a passage that Pastor Charles started last week in Luke chapter 14. Last week, we saw Jesus attend this party at the leader of the Pharisees' house, and Charles covered the portion where Jesus told a parable to all the attendees of the party. But now Jesus turned his attention to the host. It's the same lesson. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. The way up is down. Which way are you going this morning? Let's pray as we turn our hearts to God's Word. Father, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to behold Jesus. Open our ears to hear His, his graceful call. Open our hearts to believe and trust and lean wholly upon Jesus today. We pray it all in His name. Amen. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. He, Jesus, also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame." And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and yet there is still room. And the master said to the servant, 
go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In our series, we've looked at several parties and feasts that the Lord Jesus attended, and it's, it's, it's natural for him to do so. The Old Testament and the New Testament both speak of feasts as a, a metaphor, as a picture of the kingdom of God. It's filled with joy, and Jesus loved parties. Does that surprise you? Does that fit your image of who our Savior is? I hope it does, because he's the kind of God who loves to celebrate, loves to enjoy fellowship with his people. And here we have Jesus once again attending a feast. In fact, in verse 14, he calls the one in this story a great feast. And that word great is mega. It says this, this is a mega feast. And he's telling the Pharisee that his kingdom is, is like a great feast. It's a, a mega feast, but it's not exactly like the one you have in mind. How about us? If we were to throw a mega party, the kind that people talk about for weeks upon weeks, we have some kind of idea how to do it, don't we? You, you invite all the best people. You make sure you have really fun people at your party. You, you, people who have it together, you invite and make sure they come, the people who other people want to be around, right? That's what I would do. That's how you have a party to establish your own reputation, your own kingdom, to increase acclaim for the, for the legend of this wonderful party. But Jesus' picture of his kingdom is very different. Kingdom Jesus invites us into, into his table, is a feast that calls for humbling. To experience the kingdom and the power of Jesus in our lives, it takes humbling for us. So how do we see that here in this text? Well, first, at the table with Jesus, he calls us to the humility of a costly hospitality. A costly hospitality. Again, verse 12, this man who had thrown the feast, this ruler, uh, was a recipient of Jesus' speech here. He says, when you have a party and you're the host, verse 12, don't invite just your friends, but rather invite the outcasts of society, the cripple, the lame, the blind, the poor. That's strange advice, isn't it? To talk about having a mega party. Now, Jesus is not forbidding Hanging out with and spending time with your friends or your family, he's not suggesting that it's wrong to have a party and invite your friends. That, that flies in the face of the broad biblical testimony about hospitality. But instead, what Jesus is teaching us here is to think more broadly about how we use our resources, how we use our time and our talent and our treasure, because how we use what we have reveals the things we care about. How we use what we have reveals what we really care about. How so? Well, the way the world worked in those days, especially in small villages, was patronage. We invite others. We spend time with others. We invest in the relationship if we feel like they have something to offer us back. You do for me, and I'll do for you. That's how people climbed the social ladder in Jesus' day. It's, they, they traded favors with people. They wanted to be seen and to see at the right parties, to, to network so that their importance, their place and opportunity for favor and for societal power grew. I do something for you, you do something for me. That's the way small towns are built on this favor trading. It's not really all that different from St. Louis, is it? 
We live in the largest small town in America. You do something for me, and I'll do something for you. That's the way our natural world works. But what Jesus says in verse 14 is that if we want to use our resources for kingdom purposes, we should look instead to serve without expectation of return. We look for eyes that search for an opportunity to use God's resources that he's entrusted to me for his purposes. Rather than going through the world for, I'm going to use my resources for my purposes to enable me to climb to the top. It's very different in Jesus' kingdom. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. It's through humility and sacrifice. And so that faith in Jesus and in his kingdom, the the kind of faith that is shaped with a sacrificial love that Jesus exhibited on the cross, and that's empowered with the power of, of resurrection, life out of death, that kind of power, that faith in that kind of power and that kind of Jesus is willing to give up on building my kingdom. And instead, we look for ways to, to use all that he's given to me, all the time and all the talent and, and the treasure that he's entrusted to me to point people to his greatness, not to mine. John the Baptist said, in the kingdom of God, he must increase and I must decrease. And yet sometimes in a world of self-promotion like ours, using all that I have and all that I am to point away from me feels risky, doesn't it? It may feel costly to to reach out to someone without regard of whether you're going to get paid back or whether you'll be invited into hospitality in their home, or if they'll serve you as you have served them. Sometimes in our world, it feels risky to love someone else, even if it doesn't advance my position at all. And yet we do, because that's the way Jesus has loved us. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly, to bring us to God. Jesus used his resources to call sinners like us into a costly hospitality. For a seat at his table cost Jesus his very life, being crucified for us. And he calls us into the same pattern, to lay down our lives for his interests rather than ours all the time. It's a great idea in theory, but how do we put that into practice? How might you use your time and your energy to pursue that kind of open-hearted invitation of others into a life with Jesus? One practical suggestion. Thanksgiving's coming up. Who might you invite to your table without any strings attached? without expecting of a return, simply an invitation for someone to join in your family table out of the overflow of grace that you've received from Jesus. Who, who might you invite? Now, I know. I know that Thanksgiving is a, is a family time. It's when you, you get together with, with your closest family. But what if Jesus would call us to expand our definition of family this year? I wonder, is there room to add a seat for a widow or a widower at your Thanksgiving table this year. Invite them into your family. I wonder if there is a space to add a seat or two for single people in our congregation, or perhaps to use the occasion to reconcile with someone with whom you have a broken relationship. 
and come around the table together, humbling yourself in a costly humility and yet saying, let's feast together because we belong to Jesus together. It's a costly hospitality that Jesus calls us to at his table and yet he gives it to us as a gift because the Spirit of God is alive within us as his children to enable us to live with that kind of humility that's not natural to us. Second, at the table with Jesus, he exposes our priorities. To make his point, Jesus told a story, verse 16, about the invitation to a party. And when time came, the servant went out to say in verse 17, come because everything is ready. And all the guests gave excuses and didn't come. Now, what you may know is that in Jesus' day, invitations to parties came twice. The first invitation, the servant would go out all through the village and ask all the people that the master wanted to come, would you come to this feast on this particular day later this week? And these people would all say yes or no. And then the servant would return to the master and prepare for a party of the number of people he was expecting. They would prepare the food, they would make everything ready, and when it was all ready, the servant would go out again a second time to all those people who said yes and say, it's ready, come now, everything is ready. So what we're seeing here is a second invitation. These people had already said, I'm coming to the party, make me a reservation. But when the servant goes out, verse 18, they begin to give excuses and not attend. They are offensive excuses, and they exposed their own priorities that had nothing to do with the master. How? Well, the first excuse, verse 18, the person said, I bought a field and I must go and see it. Now, that, that's a terrible excuse because land deals then, as now, sometimes take a long time. And if you're going to buy a field and use it and farm it, don't you want to have some sense of whether or not it's going to be a good field before you buy it? This is backwards. It's completely backwards from the way the world worked. This is a bad excuse because this man had other priorities at play. The second excuse is maybe even worse, verse 19. I bought five yoke of oxen and must go and examine them. Now, oxen in those days were the construction vehicles. They were how you got heavy work done. But to buy them was also a careful process because you have to make sure that oxen can pull together. You have to pair them right because not all oxen can work together. They are paired in a working pair, and that's something you want to know before you go buy five yoke of oxen. Will they actually work? It would be a little bit like a, a construction company saying, now we had this huge project that, that, uh, that we're going to do, and we bought all kinds of equipment. Now let's see, might this equipment help us do this project? Don't you decide that before you go out and, and invest this is a terrible excuse. The third, do you think that one's better? Verse 20, I've married a wife. This is probably the worst of all. For numerous reasons, this is the worst of all. But the main reason is because it's a twisting of Scripture. It's a misapplication of Deuteronomy 25, which where newlyweds and men were allowed a year pass from military service in order to invest in establishing a home and a family and a healthy marriage. But it never precludes going to parties. This guy is trying to use the Bible to cover over his selfishness. 
He's twisting something in the Bible to give a pitiful excuse because there's something else that he would rather do or some other person he would rather pursue. But did you notice that all three of these excuses have one thing in common? Why do they refuse to come to the party? Because they were preoccupied with their priorities. They were preoccupied with self-fulfillment and self-advancement. They were consumed with self-interest. Maybe it's a little bit like FOMO today. Fear of missing out. I'll miss out on the better opportunity, the better invitation. I can get attention and give my attention to something that might be better for me in the long run, so I'm not going to commit so I can make sure I get the most advantage out of what's going on. I wonder if that's us today. Are you willing to consider the question, is your life so stuffed with all of your own interests, all these things that you pursue that there's just no room for Jesus anymore? Is it so filled up with all these things to advance and get, all, get better and have more fun and do things I want to do? Is, is your life so filled with those things that there's just no more room to have concern for the nations and the poor and the broken and the lame. There's just not time. It's not room. No room to think about how to love and serve without calculating what's in it for me. Is life so busy with all of our good things that we don't have room for the best thing? Jesus. He exposes our priorities at his table. And yet, what could be more important? Who could be more valuable? Who could bless us any more than the King of kings and Lord of lords who comes after us and calls us to his table, calls us into a living fellowship with him? What thing that we're involved in that would keep us away from fellowship with God's people on Sundays? What thing could love us so much that it offers more contentment and satisfaction than Jesus himself? There is no other love like Christ. There is no other pursuit worthy of your whole heart's devotion. There is nothing better to give yourself to than Jesus. And yet at his table, he exposes our priorities, doesn't he? Thirdly and finally, at the table, Jesus places us side by side. How does the master respond here? Verse 21 He extends grace further to the crippled, the lame, and the blind in the city. But the servant says, we've already done that, verse 22. And he says, well, go further out. Go outside the city. Go out the safety of the city walls to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. Now, why would they have to be compelled to come to this wonderful feast? Well, put yourself inside the story. If you were one of those outcasts that lived in the highways or the hedges, you lived outside city walls, there was a reason There was a reason you weren't permitted to live inside the city because either your notorious sin or you were needy or you had disease or you were unclean in some way. You lived out there because that's where they wanted you to live, not inside. So how would you feel if someone comes to you and says, the leader, the ruler, the most wealthy person in all the city wants to invite you to a fancy banquet? Now, if you were that person who lived out there in the highways and the hedges, I think you'd probably say, are you sure? (laughs) Do you really want me to come? Because your kind doesn't associate with my kind. Your people don't hang out with my people. Do you, you really want me to come? This has to be some kind of mistake. That's what they would probably think. But Jesus says here, 
is that's exactly what I want. For people to come to my table as he is the host. Jesus is calling people who know their neediness. Who know that they would be unattractive to the host. And you almost have to drag them in because they know they don't deserve a place. The grace that would call someone like that, someone who sees themselves as needy, as unclean, as having nothing to contribute, the love would have to be so good to call in someone with a modicum of self-awareness of their condition and not doubt that it wasn't good enough for me. That's the kind of people Jesus wants. The world operates that way. My kind doesn't hang out with your kind, but Jesus wants you. Jesus wants even you. Jesus wants especially you, no matter your sin. Sinful in all kinds of ways, no matter what you've done, if you know you don't belong, you are in exactly the right spot. It's almost like those credit card applications you get in the mail. You ever get those that show up in your, in your mailbox and they pre-qualified for this credit card? Jesus is saying, you're all pre-qualified for my grace because none of you deserve it. And it's only the people who don't deserve it that I'm calling into my kingdom because that's the only kind of people there are. Did you notice it's not only to those in the highways and the hedges, those notorious sinners, but he also calls out to the Pharisee. He calls that religious leader. He calls upstanding religious people like us people who would not want to see ourselves as needy and as sinful as those people out there. Yet Jesus calls them. He calls us to repentance all the same because in Jesus' day, just like it is now, it's hard for powerful people, for the elite, for the educated. It's hard for people on the top of society's heap to hear and answer God's call. Why? Because His call is one that offers kind grace to the needy and the broken and the sinful and the poor and the lame and the blind. And maybe we don't like being lumped together with that group of people. Maybe we like to think, well, your kind doesn't associate with my kind. And yet the call of the kingdom of God is a call to humbling of all kinds of people. Following Jesus is a great leveler of humanity. We come to him with our need. We're believing that good news of the gospel calls us to proclaim that although I might be powerful or well-educated at the top of the social unit in my community, I am also so poor and so needy that I can't save myself. No matter how hard I try, no matter what I've done, my life cries out for judgment because I deserve it for who I've been and how I've behaved. And in fact, I am so wicked that the Son of God Himself had to take on flesh and go to a humiliating death on a cross for me because I deserve judgment, but He's taken it from me. And what's more, that same God has adopted us into His family. He's called us His very own children, all kinds of sinners, the notorious sinners and proud sinners. To follow Jesus It's to be humbled and to be placed side by side with all kinds of sinners, some who sin in ways I do, some who sin in different ways. I want you to listen very carefully. No one can ever be so respectable that they don't need Jesus. 
No one can ever be so respectable that you have no need for a Savior. We all need a Savior. But also it's true that no one can ever be so wicked that they are beyond the reach of His grace. He calls all kinds of sinners to His table. And He places us side by side for His own glory's sake. Question for us, is are we following in His footsteps? Are we taking on that family resemblance of belonging into Jesus' family? Have we taken him by the hand as he brings us into his kingdom by his grace and with our other outstretched hand, we're reaching for the least and the lost in our world? Are we following his family resemblance? Are we having lives that look like Christ's? Because when we have a life like that because of his saving of us, when we know we don't deserve it, it gives us eyes in humility to seek out the highways and the hedges and the least and the lost and call them in with a compelling love that drew a sinner like me into a relationship with Jesus. Humility in God's kingdom seeks out other kinds of sinners to receive the same love that you and I have received. Are we willing to sit side by side? I'll close with this. Yesterday we at Presbytery meeting. Presbytery is a regional council, region and governing body of the churches in our community in this, in this area, the state of Missouri. And uh, at Presbytery, we had a missionary come and speak, and he serves in London. He serves in a neighborhood that's mostly South Asian. So he serves lots of uh, uh, Indian people. He serves uh, Middle Eastern people. He serves Chinese people. There's all kinds of people that live in this neighborhood of London where the world has gathered. And he told us about two men in this congregation. One was, uh, they were both Iraqi, and one of them grew up Chaldean Iraqi. He grew up as a Christian. And he was, in, he was part of the family that was really powerful in the, in the community. In fact, this man was a leader in Saddam Hussein's government. And when the war broke out, this man fled. He fled to London, where he is settled now, and he is following Jesus in this church, in this community. There's another Iraqi man in the same church. This Iraqi man is Kurdish, and he lived for a number of years persecuted in what amounted to be a concentration camp run by Saddam's government for Kurds, people like him. He also found his way to London after the war, and Jesus found him. Jesus saved him, and he is now part of this church. These two guys side by side in the same church in London. In Iraq, they would never be at the same parties in the same fellowship. They probably would have never even met. But here they are, being invited into the same feast with Jesus. Here they are, side by side, singing praise to the Lord Jesus Christ and His great love that saved people like them. Here they are, seated side by side at a communion table, having fellowship with Jesus and fellowship with one another. It took humility for both of them to sit side by side and be able to do this because they disagreed on so much. These two men come from very different backgrounds, have very different views on the government in Iraq, and they will never agree on those views of that government in Iraq. And yet here they are side by side, two sinners seated together at the table with Jesus. That's what the gospel does. That's what being at the table with Jesus 
truly does. It humbles us to a hospitality that's costly sometimes, calls for a humility, and sometimes it's hard. That gospel of Jesus also exposes our priorities that we put ahead of Christ, and He calls us to lay them down because we'll never find satisfaction in anything other than Jesus. And He calls us to sit side by side with all kinds of sinners. Embrace in humility, bound together, worshiping together. That's what happens at the table with Jesus. How about you? How about Jesus' invitation to you? Have you ever confessed that you are a sinner and you need a Savior? Have you ever, ever agreed with God about your own condition? That you, like I, have been so wicked that you could never save yourself. But the Son of God took on flesh and was crucified for you to take judgment that you deserve. Raised from the dead in victory over it all and now He's ascended. And that same Jesus who knows you and loves you reigns from heaven. Have you ever confessed your need for Him? If you haven't, today is the day. Today is the day to trust Jesus and be invited to an eternal feast. Are we willing to humbly take our seat alongside other sinners whom Jesus calls saints and celebrate his grace? There's a great feast coming. On the last day, there will be judgment and there will be resurrection of the just. And Jesus says, come in, come home to me, for I love people just like you. Let's pray. Father, we, we are overwhelmed that you have set your affection on people like us. You know more about us than we know about ourselves, and yet you have taken on flesh. You've come for us. You were crucified for us. You were raised from the dead and reigned in heaven so that we would be blessed. So this morning, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We, we bow before your beauty, your grace, and your majesty. And we confess we need you. Make us a company of sinners who've been turned into saints by the living Lord Jesus. We pray it all in his name.